Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and today I'm joined with Dr. Matthew Sleeth, who is a former ER physician and chief of medical staff, and is now the executive director of Blessed Earth and the author of numerous books. Welcome back, everyone, to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike, and thank you for tuning in today. If this is your first episode, welcome. It is great to have you for this podcast. I hope you enjoy the conversation today with Dr. Matthew Sleeth. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for your continued support. It means so much to me. If you wouldn't mind pausing this podcast and leaving a Google Play or iTunes review and rating, if only if it's five stars and if it's positive, I, I sure hope that would be much appreciated. In today's conversation, I speak with Dr. Matthew Sleeth and we discuss his time graduating from high school, then working as a carpenter, and then finding himself in medical school without an undergraduate degree. He has a very crazy story uh, that he elaborates in further detail, um, working as a medical professional to now working at Blessed Earth with a mission inspiring faithful stewardship of all creation. He is fresh off his latest release, Reforesting Faith, what trees teach us about na the nature of God and his love for us. He elaborates on the missing link between trees and people overlooking of their importance. Trees are always giving and the same is true with God. He explores the archaeological findings and investigation in the Middle East and the alignment of the sequence of events of figs and trees coming first rather than grains uh, and just that affirmation of seeing the importance of, of nature. Um, he discusses the connection between nature and why it's necessary to let more light into our lives, allowing the beams to show their beauty. I'm excited for this podcast episode today. Uh, I discuss, discuss a whole lot more with Dr. Matthew Sleeth, and I'm excited for you all to tune in. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Matthew Sleeth. It's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. So um, you're fresh off your latest release, um, which is now available of Reforesting Faith. So first of all, congratulations on this latest book. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, it's like giving birth to a baby. It just takes a lot longer <laughs> to get here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I, 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 I want to come back to your book and I want to hear kind of how the, the initial impression and how listeners have been receiving it. But first, I want to uh, backtrack and discuss a bit more about your, your childhood, your background, and kind of your story as a medical professional um, and how that developed and then all and then also on the transition to the the the, the path that you're on right now and, and, and all the work that you're doing wow back to childhood no well, that's many decades ago many decades uh, yeah we uh couldn't wear uh we couldn't go barefoot when i was a kid uh because the rock hadn't cooled sufficiently you know for us to uh, to walk on it but anyways uh, i grew up in a little town called woodfield maryland and it was absolutely perfectly named. It had two things, woods and fields. And on the fields there were Holstein uh, cows, and in the woods there was me. Um, 
went went to church as a, a little kid, and um, uh, uh, as I grew up, I uh, found out I was a horrific student in school. I flunked out of the 10th grade. By the time I was 16, I was living on my own, and I had a, a stroke of good luck in that a person I was working for said if I would go back and re-register in school and get some kind of high school equivalency, he would give me a vehicle and put gas in it. Well, as a 16-year-old on your own, that's an irresistible uh, uh, lifeline, yes. <laughs> really. So, yes. uh, so I took that and uh, uh, got a, an equivalency sort of degree. And, and then um, after high school, uh, for seven years, I was a carpenter. And uh, one day I was... Uh, went to see about a job. My favorite kind of customers, they had lots of money. Um, uh, the guy was a periodontal surgeon. It was a Jewish family. And when I went to see about the job, uh, they had uh, four children. And when I met their 18-year-old daughter, their worst nightmare began to unfold. That's that's my wife, Nancy. So uh, when we decided to marry, which was pretty shortly after we met, uh, I faced a lifetime of being married into this family that didn't want me alive, much less wow. <laughs> married to their daughter. And uh, there's only one thing that I could advise for people marrying into a Jewish family if, if you weren't born Jewish, and that's go to medical school. So that's what <laughs> I said I'm going to do. <laughs> oh, and uh, the problem is no undergraduate school would take me. Uh, and I went and talked to an uncle who my son is named after who said, I'll get you into college, I'll make you a resident of this state. You have one semester and the rest is up to you. But I think you can do it. Um, and uh, two and a half years after that, I was accepted to multiple medical schools without an undergraduate degree. So shows you what you can do if you marry my wife. <laughs> and, and are highly oh, motivated to get in good with your in-laws. Um, wow. Uh, and uh, we had our first child, uh, my, my son Clark, uh, in medical school, and then my second, uh, Emma, when I was in residency. Uh, and we moved to New England uh, after residency. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the story of how I got into medicine. <laughs> yes, wow. Um, and just, just translating that, I know that obviously science was a big part of your your studies and of your life and before um, uh, becoming a Christian or uh, and, and entering into and seeing the biblical significance of uh, the work that you're doing now and that I'm sure is continuously keeping you motivated um, how did you I guess understand your calling to uh, moving from medical field to serving nature in the, in, in the environment when I know you were previously a secular humanist and um, and, and kind of how that change transpired for you. Yeah, I, I would have told you at any time along uh, the path of my life, as soon as I kind of knew the word that I was an environmentalist, I grew up in, in the environment uh, per se. I grew up uh, in, in a farming mm -hmm. setting, but uh, around some magnificent trees and, and countryside. Um, and... Uh, uh, that, that was just part of something I was raised uh, with, uh, but there was no connection to faith because I didn't have any. Mm. Um, I, uh, the kind of the turning point came for us when we were on vacation. 
uh, one winter, it was February, and schools let out in northern New England in February for a week to save energy, is, is how it started. And they, they all continued to do it. They've done it for 30 or 40 years. Um, and so we went on that February break and stayed on an island off the Gulf, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, no, no roads there, uh, no lights at night, um, and the kids were in bed, and my wife and I were, you know, facing just paradise, the gulf, mm. the wind was blowing off of that, the Milky Way spread out overhead, uh, the sound of wind in palms at night in the tropics is the most beguiling sound on the planet, I think. And in that setting, my wife turned to me and said, Matthew, what's the biggest problem on Earth? And that was a very unusual question. She just asked me hypothetical questions. And big enough questions like that, uh, I don't think. And I thought for a moment, I said, the world's dying. Um, there aren't elms on Elm Street. There aren't chestnuts on Chestnut Street. There aren't caribou in Caribou, Maine. The only buffalo in Buffalo, New York are metal statues by the highway. I, I could go on and on. Mm. I said, I don't think that humanity can do business as usual for another century and it's going to turn out okay. And then she said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I, I had no clue. Uh, we came back from that vacation and then things started changing in our life. A, a number of bad things happened. My, uh, my wife's only brother drowned in front of my children. Uh, and that, that very much changed them, uh, particularly my son. And, uh, and my wife got very sad, depressed, and stayed that way. Um, then I had a patient stalk me, do scary stuff. Long story short, uh, he, had, he ended up, uh, when the police checked on him, he killed his mother. She was in the closet where he taped her up and beat her to death a week or so before. And then the last uh, kind of bad thing that I really recall or will talk about is I uh, got home from work um, in, in the fall uh, on a perfect day, and uh, it was uh, September 11th, and, and my uh, 2001, and uh, I was kind of drifting in and out of sleep on the couch. Uh, Nancy came home from the post office and said, we got to watch what's happening in New York. And, and we watched as this horrible tragedy unfolded. And uh, just shortly after the second tower came down, my next door neighbor called me. Uh, she had a son, my son's age, they'd grown up together. And she said, I need your help getting him from school. His dad was in the first plane, hit the first tower. And I woke up to the fact that there was evil on the planet. And evil is a spiritual concept and it didn't fit into my paradigm of if you can't measure it, reproduce it, um, and study it, uh, then it doesn't exist. Um, evil does exist. And uh, in, in that dark, dark place, um, I began to look for answers. And I started reading through some of the world's sacred texts. I read the Ramayana first, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, slogged through the Quran. Um, and things for me changed when I picked up a Bible in the waiting room of the hospital one Sunday morning. I realized I'd never read it, that we didn't have one in our home, and our home had a library in it. We were, we're all, my whole family and I are voracious readers. 
Uh, but we didn't own a Bible. Um, and uh, there was no way, it's a big book. <laughs> There's no way I was going to finish it before the first patient uh, came in, so I stole it. Uh, and then, I, then it's where you start tackling this book. And here's the news that people from a Wesleyan background would call prevenient grace. Uh, that is the grace that God extends to you before you know God exists. Um, and that prevenient grace is that my parents named me Matthew and not Numbers. Uh, because I turned to the book of Matthew simply because, oh, that's, that's the same name as me. If I, was, if I was named Numbers, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. Uh, and in the book of Matthew, I met, I met Christ. And everything changed after that. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. Um, and I know when these different experiences happened to you, I was just thinking uh, of the of the real evil in this world, and um, which can, which can't be measured, and it's something hard to explain. Uh, you can't explain it through through the the type of you know method or formula that you were that you were previously using, um, but having to turn to the Bible and seeking truth. Um, to make sense of it and, and again, to, to live in light of grace or to live in, in light of, the, of, of truth. And from, I, I want to hear kind of as, and obviously now the, the, the question that she had posed to you, this really deep, um, deep question while you were in Mexico uh, that I'm sure left you thinking or maybe kind yeah, of... What are you going to do about a world that's dying? And right. Eventually I came to her and I said... Uh, really based off Matthew 7, um, judge not lest you be judged, and it tells us to get the two by four out of our own eye and and not worry about the sawdust in our neighbor's eye. And uh, so I realized that we need to change our lifestyle. And uh, uh, so we, we moved from that house to one the size of our garage, cut our fossil fuel hmm. used to like a tenth or th that sort of thing. And so there were a lot of changes, and, and I quit my uh, job in medicine. I really felt this irresistible call to follow the Lord in something. I didn't know where he was leading me, um, but that I had to go, so I went. So you went, and, we then, went. and then from and, that... And all of my family became believers, um, and that's where we landed, and that's where we are today. My, my son's a pediatrician at Tenwakastapal in Kenya, and my... Uh, there with his wife and, and my daughter's uh, married to a pastor and, and they're in Kenya at an orphanage uh, wow. working. So. Wow. Fantastic. So I, so, so I know now that you're as the executive director of Blessed Earth, the, the organization that sprouted from, um, from uh, this, this big question and just how you were looking to make a difference in this world. What is the, the mission of Blessed Earth and, and some of the methods that you use to carry out this mission? Uh, the, the, the mission is to e educate uh, uh, people about uh, being good stewards of every, everything, uh, the creation, their times, their talents, that sort of thing. We lean into, um, we lean into creation uh, kind of heavily, but we've also done a lot of work around Sabbath uh, because all of the, the connection between Sabbath and creation care is that most of the ethics that we derive from scripture about caring for the environment fall out under the sabbatical laws in, in the Old Testament. So there's, there's very much a link there. Um, and we, we do that through books, and I've written a number of books 
um, uh, Serve God, Save the Planet was the, the first, uh, wrote uh, the introduction to the Green Bible and worked on, on that to uh, Desmond Tutu did the forward, I did the introduction, Pope did the next essay. Um, done a lot of articles, and uh, but we've also had up to 20 employees at a time um, working on Sabbath and that type of thing. So um, at times we've been, a, and, and most of the time actually we've been fairly large or large-ish and, and 20 or so employees, uh, we're, we're cutting back so I can write more actually. Wow. So your latest book now I want to get and kind of explore and some more layers here. Um, Reforesting Faith, you explore how trees can teach us about the nature of God and his love for us. Um, I guess first, what biblical connections have you seen that you'd first point to that may be overlooked in their, uh, in their meaning and, and interpretation kind of as a lot of uh, readers or, or maybe pastors, theologians are often overlook? Yes, I think that the average person today has never had a sermon on trees in Scripture. Uh, the average person coming out of seminary may have never had a lecture on the trees and their significance in, in uh, Scripture. Uh, that's a shame. Uh, it hasn't always been that way. I have a list of Spurgeon sermons, about a dozen of them, that are just on trees uh, in Scripture. Um, most of us, even if we aren't familiar with sermons um, or haven't had lectures on it, may have read the works of C.S. Lewis or Tolkien or, or George D. MacDonald. And all of those writers, Christian writers, uh, cast the people who care for trees as the good guys and the people who are clear cutters of, of forests as the bad guys. That's not something they're pulling out of thin air. That's something they're deriving from a biblical narrative and a, um, a biblical perspective. And so if we turn actually to the Bible, um, what you find is that uh, trees are the most mentioned living thing in scripture other than people and God. Uh, there's a tree on the first page of the Bible. The first Psalm tells us to be like a tree. Jesus's family tree in, at the beginning of the New Testament has a tree in it and um, and the last page of scripture has uh, a, a tree there as the centerpiece of heaven uh, every important character in scripture has a tree associated with them and every major theological event has a tree marking the spot the only thing that Jesus ever harms is a tree and the only thing that can harm him is a tree. The Bible refers to itself in Proverbs 3.18 as a tree of life. I can go on and on like this. Mm -hmm. The fact is that people have glossed over a major chunk of the Bible and uh, um, not meaning to. Uh, but I remember give, giving a talk in uh, Florida um, oh, four or five years ago. And uh, I somehow didn't have my Bible with me. And so I borrowed someone's Bible in the, in the crowd, and it was one of those duct-taped up and, you know, really well-used, loved uh, Bibles. You could tell the guy just, you know, just loved Scripture. Um, and he highlighted, you know, all over the place, different colors. It must have had some pattern or something. 
And I realized that I could find the scriptures I was looking for by turning to his Bible and finding the one place on a page that wasn't highlighted. And uh, I did it over and over again. And so we've, we've kind of uh, looked away from those uh, scriptures. And I think that's really hurt our faith and our understanding of God and our calling. Wow, there's so I know, and there's a handful of examples, and I'm sure you can continue to go on. But I, I um, want to look at Noah and the Ark as one particular example. What's the what connection do you see between Noah and the Ark and trees, and and what insights can we glean from this? Uh, Noah is is called to build an ark, and that ark is built out of gopher wood. Gopher is. Uh, uh, some Bibles will try to speculate what the wood is. Gopher is simply a transliteration of a Hebrew word that we don't know what it, the, the species of tree is. I think the perhaps significance of that is we were promised we'd never need it again, so we don't need yeah. to know um, uh, what, what species of tree mm-hmm. it was. But using that tree, God saves all of humanity. Um, and uh, a tree is going to be used again and again as, mm. as the Bible unfolds to save us. Uh, and uh, that's, that's one of the first instances post-Garden uh, of Eden uh, mm. time for humanity. Um, and uh, as you go forward, uh, all these major characters are at some point going to have some contact with a tree. If it's Moses, he's going to use a piece of a tree to part the Red Sea. Uh, when they come to water that's undrinkable, uh, it's bitter. They're going to throw a tree in and make it drinkable. That mm-hmm. All of those trees are really symbols for Christ. Christ is the tree of life. Uh, and, and so uh, that, that's the significance of the trees. Mm. Yeah, no, well, that's, there's, I feel like there's several ways that they're used, and um, by no means do I know everything, obviously, but the, um, when you look at their trees being used as, I guess, as objects protecting, um, in Noah's Ark, Noah, Noah, Noah's Ark example, protecting people, but also people being personified as trees themselves or given the descriptive imagery of Joseph or Jesus Christ as the tree of life or being referred to as a tree and, and really wrapping the person around a tree. How do you make sense of kind of the, the person of Joseph, Joseph, person of Jesus and the way that the tree is, is being used um, in, in, their, in their life? Yeah, great question. It's interesting, you know, I, I said that every major character in Scripture has a tree associated with them. Joseph is actually the exception to that, at first blush. Uh, but uh, Joseph is actually given the Bible's highest compliment uh, when Israel is giving the blessings to his 12 sons. To Joseph, he says, Joseph is a tree. He's a fruitful bough whose, whose limb goes over the wall, and his influence is spread, you know, far beyond uh, where he started out. And, uh, and we are called to be uh, light trees in Psalm 1 or be the plantings of the Lord's, the oaks of righteousness. Um, I think one of the reasons is, uh, well, I think there's, there's so many uh, uh, reasons around the trees. One is that 
trees are the longest lived thing on the planet. And God, post-fall, is constantly trying to get us to think in terms of eternity. And we are, because of the fall, locked into this three score and ten mindset. Um, and, and trees can live for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of a bridge between us and the eternal God. Um, the other thing is that trees are always giving. Did a tree ever take anything from you? No. You take everything from a tree, you know? Um, and, and so do I. And it's the same with, with God. He's, there's nothing that we can give to God. Um, we are only on the receiving end. And, and the only thing that, that God really asks of us is that we receive him. Uh, receive him in our in our homes, our hearts, our our souls, um, and he'll do he'll do the work. Uh, and and so um, I think it, that's another reason the trees are used. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, so I'm sure that you've kind of looked into the the location of Israel and the the archaeological significance uh, or, or archaeological work that's been done and seeing kind of the I don't know the types of trees that placement of trees, what have you kind of looked into or, or uh, explored in that, of the archaeological work connecting to nature and the environment? You know, it's, it's interesting. In, when you look at the, the Middle East, um, I'll just these are just a couple of trivia things. When I was uh, in elementary school, high school, college, the dictum was that agriculture began in the Fertile Crescent and it, it began with grains, that they began to manipulate barley and wheat, and that was the beginning of agriculture. I'm, even though you're in a different generation, you were taught the same thing, correct? Mm-hmm. And, and um, interestingly, the Bible doesn't put it that way. It has uh, figs and dates uh, and olives showing up first, and archaeology has um, recently uncovered the, the Tufi people um, cultivating uh, figs far before uh, grains were uh, cultivated in, in the uh, Middle East. So <clears throat> our Bible, it turns out, has the sequence of events uh, right in that. Not that that matters per se. Um, but but it's it's a curiosity that scripture uh, has it unfold that way and that now is the way that we uh, understand that agriculture uh, began um, in archaeologic terms the the Middle East and the Holy Lands uh, Israel was a much more forested place uh, in in the past and um, Richard the Lionhearted bogged down in trees uh, in the Crusades and everything. We don't think of Israel as being a heavily forested place, but a lot of it was um, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I think that the country over the, uh, of Israel over the last 7,500 years has moved back in that direction of reforesting the country. It's been a major um, part of... Uh, um, Zionism, if you will, is to reforest the, the Holy Land. Wow. Um, so kind of making putting this into a bit more, I guess, practical connection for people as they're looking to take away and, and go out when um, speaking on the, uh, 
how we can get to know um, the nature of God and his love for us. Like, so when we actually step out into nature, get outside of the, outside of the city, hopefully, and kind of see the, the beauty and the scenery um, in, in the wilderness, how can we come to a greater appreciation and understanding of God? Uh, I, th- I think it's uh, by his beauty. I think a lot of people have felt an uh, overwhelming sense of beauty when they're in the woods. And those woods can be sometimes in the middle of cities, uh, mm-hmm. too. Uh, uh, you don't necessarily have to go out to the, to, to the wilderness areas. But mm-hmm. uh, just to be surrounded by those trees, we feel a sense of awe and beauty. And I think one of the, my hopes for this book is that people who feel that will understand that they are sharing an aesthetic with their creator. Uh, Genesis 2.9 um, states that God made all the trees that are good for food and pleasant to the sight. That's a one-off line in scripture. God's weighing in on aesthetics. And, um, and that aesthetic will hold from one end of scripture to the other. And so if God is going to tell his people how to make a lampstand, he'll want it to resemble a tree. If he's going to tell them how to make a corbel on the temple uh, wall, it's going to resemble a tree. If he if he's giving instructions on how to decorate the high priest's robe, the, the hymn, it's going to have part of a tree, a, a pomegranate on it. And, and Jesus really reinforces this uh, when he's talking about um, Solomon and all his glory. If we could imagine Solomon at the height of his reign, was probably the most magnificent culture that's ever existed. Um, you know, thousands of chariots, 700 concubines, 300 wives. Just imagine everybody getting ready for a state visit. Imagine the blow dryers all going on, you know, a <laughs> thousand in the, in the palaces and everything. And Solomon being, you know, decked out in these gems and gold and everything. And Jesus says, imagine all that one flower one flower beats it all and and so um uh and then we get the picture of heaven in revelation 22 where this the tree of life the leaves are for the healing of the nations and everything so if you walk out in the woods and you feel this sense of awe and beauty there um that's you're not to worship the trees but you you've got to say this this is a reflection of the creator and uh, how aptly named it was. God named uh, the tree of life. Uh, the tree of life, that's thousands of years before we understood that a tree, just by looking at it, is keeping you alive. It's creating the substance that you need to metabolize everything. Uh, it's creating oxygen. And so I think we should have a sense of a little bit of awe, a little bit of of reverence. Uh, this is what our Creator holds in high esteem. It's what we should hold in high esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's an opportunity uh, to bring a generation back in, which has, in essence, been shunned from the church. Uh, there's a lot of people who felt something out there in the woods, and we've said, "Oh no, no." Um, we, we've literally gotten so far into dualism, I believe, in the church that I've been to hundreds of churches in which not even a ray of God's light is allowed inside the church. There's no flowers in the front. There's not a thing that God made in there other than us. The problem with that is God begins to resemble us 
if all we're looking at is ourselves and talking about God. Um, God also resembles, you know, a towering 300-foot-tall uh, tree. Um, the only description we have of Christ in, in the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, and Isaiah 53 says he, he looks like a little tree. He grew up before us like a plant out of dry ground, etc. Um, so uh, I hope some of those connections are made for people in a very practical way. Wow. No, it's very powerful, and I, I, I can see some um, how when when you're speaking on kind of shifting a little bit too much into a dualistic mentality and forgetting to appreciate uh, kind of God's goodness through creation, through nature. And um, can you can you mention again? You said as He reflects nature onto uh, onto Earth, that we are kind of being shaped into. Can you can you speak on that one more time? Um. I'm sorry, I didn't follow exactly what you yeah. wanted to elaborate on. Sorry, um, just the, I guess just reiterate the last point that you were making. Um, you were you had spoken kind of on when we forget to kind of let uh, you know sunlight into our into our right. life. We we begin to be the me- measure of all things, and the measurement is pretty small. <laughs> it's about six feet tall at the most. You know, yeah. it's it's human size. Um, you know, it's interesting that even in in the story of Job, when uh, we see somebody just undergoing this incredible sorrow, um, and he's lost everything, and God shows up, and he doesn't explain the sorrow. He takes Job on a walk through all of nature, and he poses these incredible questions. If maternal instincts are so necessary, then why do some animals have them and some don't? and takes us from the height of the stars and constellations and, and, and to the, the depths of the ocean and really takes us on a nature walk. Um, so I don't think it's surprising that when Christ was in his ministry that he would regularly take time to get away. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, as, uh, as it says in Mark, and the, and the, and the creatures came and ministered uh, to him and comforted him, the creatures and the angels. So. Um, I think it would be good, good uh, practice for us to maybe follow a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had sp- spoken earlier on, you know, uh, asking what what have trees um, or uh, what have trees done for us, and you know, and, and what have we done to trees? And it's it feel a lot of times it's a it's more of a one way, one way relationship. Trees are giving a lot more for us, and we um, don't always give back or steward. Um, our steward the steward the environment. What question would you leave our our listeners with to to ponder? It doesn't necessarily have to be as deep of a question, maybe that your wife asked you years ago, but to think about our responsibility and our um, uh, as we as we go as we go off and look to in, incorporate this into our life. I, I would ask most people, when's the last time they actually planted a tree? Uh, the United Nations is in the midst of the trillion tree campaign. They believe uh, that we're about a trillion trees short on the planet, uh, uh, where we really could be and should be. Um, and to, to plant a tree in your backyard is, is literally the only thing you can do in your backyard that makes the whole world better. Uh, and, and a lot of young people have never had an adult plant a tree with them. So I'd say, Plant a tree and um, 
that tree should resemble our faith over time it should grow and it should you know bear fruit or flowers or whatever and our faith should be like that we never see it grow moment to moment but our faith should be something that's like a tree that over the course of a lifetime you kind of say how did it get to be that big or that beautiful great well well thank you Matthew for for sharing a bit more about your your life backstory and your latest book reforesting faith where can people tune in to the you know follow the work that you're doing and also get get a hands-on the book as well the book is uh, Christian book distributors, Amazon has it, you know, kind of wherever books are, are sold uh, should show up. It's also in a audio uh, format and you can get it on Kindle. Um, and I mentioned that by simply buying the book, you're beginning the process of planting a tree. All of the proceeds that I uh, have gotten from the book are uh, donated to Plant With Purpose uh, located in uh, their headquarters is in San Diego uh, and they have uh, young folks uh, around the world uh, working on planting uh, trees uh, mostly in places uh, that, that need help economically. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on today um, and, and hearing more about um, everything that you're up to right now. So thank you. Thank you.